and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Uh, well, good morning, church. As you may notice, I am not your regularly scheduled programming up here. Um, I'm not sure what gave it away. I am a bit taller than our usual pastor, and the beard is a bit shorter, so there's like a weight and measure there. But regardless, my name is Chris Rothenberry. Oh, hold on. Got turned on. Uh, I'm a member here at Bent Tree Church, and if this is your first time with us, as I kind of alluded to, we usually have our senior pastor, Paul, taking us expositionally, line by line, through a book of the Bible. We're in a series of John right now. Uh, however, as you've probably seen, the leadership of this church is very, very invested in equipping and training those who feel called to either pastoral or teaching or some kind of ministry in this capacity. So I just have to say off the top, I'm extremely grateful to the elders and leadership here at Bentry who for two years now have been pouring into me, giving me opportunities like this, and sharpening me so I can be here and preach God's word. Amen? Amen. And we're going to jump right in because my first draft of the sermon was 60 minutes. We're not going that long, but there's a lot to cover. So this morning, as has been alluded to, we're covering the sin of partiality, or as your translation may read, favoritism. And I put our definition front and forward, front and, yeah, front and center for you this morning. Uh, partiality slash favoritism. Unfair, special treatment towards someone rooted in an evil judgment. Partiality or favoritism is unfair, special treatment towards someone rooted in an evil judgment. And as you can tell, we're going to be studying primarily James chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. But I obviously asked Jerry to read a few verses before and after because I wanted to give a full context, especially since we're jumping into this as a one-time study this morning and it's not part of an expositional series. And that's important because this sin of favoritism or partiality is not a small matter. And I can promise you it's probably crept into your life as it has mine, which is why I want to identify and cut it out this morning. So let me give you a brief 30,000-foot overview of the book of James. I know we're kind of parachuting into it for a brief study here. And with that, this is our roadmap for this morning. I learned this from Wade Williams, a great teacher. I'm not great at outlining what I'm going to be doing. So here's our roadmap. We're going to look at the sin of partiality in the context that James addressed it. And then I'm going to expand the sin and talk about two major areas that I see in the church today outside of James's context. And then obviously, what do we do about it? What's the solution? So here's your 30,000-foot overview of the book of James. This letter of the book of James reads a lot like a New Testament version of Proverbs. If you're familiar with Proverbs, it's kind of wisdom claim after wisdom claim, rather than like a Pauline epistle where there's a narrative and an overarching story throughout. And this is very similar. And this was written primarily to Jewish Christians with a focus on the practical application of their faith. So a short subtitle, this isn't what the subtitle is, but it could be, God's people should act like God's people. God's people should act like God's people. And James, if you've read this book, does not mince words. This guy was not very nice. He was holy, though. He boldly declares throughout this book that if you make a profession of faith that has no fruit, it's quite worthless and damaging to the reputation of Christ. He specifically calls out hypocrite believers who say one thing, but then do quite the opposite. 
And in the first part of his letter, James is focusing heavily on a Christian's response to trials and staying steadfast. And then you see him kind of start to shift towards righteous behavior and religion that's undefiled. And you see that in verse 27 of chapter 1 that I had uh, Elder Jerry read. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So we need to keep that in our head as we're now entering into chapter 2. Where now James is thinking, let's talk about the sin of partiality and favoritism. So what does this sin look like? What does James address it as? Well, let's go line by line. Verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So, pop quiz right off the top. It's open book. Don't worry. How much favoritism should we show as we live out our faith? None. No favoritism. Not even 1% out of 100. And this sin is directly relating to how we're living out our Christian faith, as you see James C. James is saying that if you claim faith in Christ, you ought not show any partiality. I'll say that one more time. James is saying if you claim faith in Christ, you ought not show any partiality or favoritism. No room. And James here, you see, rebuking special attention towards others that is motivated in an evil or unfair judgment. And if you notice in chapter, verse 1, he says Christ is Lord of glory. Interesting title to tag to him, Lord of glory. Why? Well, let's move on to verses 2 through 4, and I'll show you. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? I see favoritism as a glory issue. Do you see that? It's a glory issue. Because James and ourselves would probably have no issue reserving a special seat in the front for an elderly person. If I was sitting up there and this was a packed house, I would have no issue standing up and making room for someone who needed that chair. Amen? Amen. We recognize that honor and respect is due to certain people, but what James is saying, catch this, is that wealth does not inherently qualify you for special treatment. James is saying that wealth does not inherently qualify you for special treatment. And the rich, well-dressed attendee is actively being elevated and propped up and admired, while this poor, shabby member is actively, not just passively, pushed aside. And that's why I think James, in verse 1, is leading to this as evidence of our faith and also calls Christ Lord of glory, because he's reminding us who ultimately gets the glory and attention. Not the wealthy, Christ Partiality is elevating and glorifying something more than Christ. Call that idolatry. There's a lot of little sins tied up in this. And I think the specific example that you see James talking about with the wealthy and the poor probably would have ruffled some feathers. I don't know if the church would have been super joyous reading this for the first time. Because the early church in general was not super rich. They weren't super plugged in. I think unlike the American church, we have property and we, I mean, maybe it's changing a little bit, but we're more far-reaching. So when the occasional wealthy citizen came to these churches, I think they would have been very tempted to show favoritism to them. Would have been very strong. Because this person has money and connections and assets and resources. 
Which is why I say I think these early believers were tempted to have a spirit to prostitute this relationship with the rich member. Yes, I just said prostitute from the stage. They're prostituting their relationship because they're saying, I'm going to give you my love and affection. In return, I want your resources. I want your connections. And James actually goes on in verses 5 through 7, as I had Jerry read, to remind these believers actually how often these same rich members were persecuting them and oppressing them in court and making their lives a living hell, just to show them the depth of their hypocrisy and favoritism. Now, seating arrangements aren't quite as coveted these days. You might read this and say, that doesn't really sound like a problem we have right now. But let's be honest, this favoritism towards the wealthy has not disappeared at all. As an example, I have a a really good friend who told me a story of a church here in northern Colorado many, many years ago. And they had a a young lady that was leading publicly on stage for worship. And while doing that, took some actions to then move in with her boyfriend, not husband, boyfriend in her department. So church elders find out about this. They approach her with grace and truth, trying to seek reconciliation and repentance and working with her. And she refused. So they said, okay, we're not going to let you serve in this public position. We're going to remove you from stage until there's a change of heart and character because we can't have you living this double life while you're publicly standing up on front of stage here. So long story short, a couple different layers of consequences. Her father, who's one of the top five donors of the church, seeks a meeting with the pastor and essentially says if she's not reinstated, he will stop all tithing immediately. What would you do if you were that pastor? You, I mean, let's say like, yeah, sure, I would absolutely say no. We can be honest and say that's a temptation, right? This has, church has salaries, bills, overhead. They have things to pay for. Livelihoods are at stake. We can be honest and at least say it would have been a much easier decision if the guy was poor. It's like, well, I don't need your $5 a year. Like, sure, okay, peace out. Well, praise God, this man of faith said no. He refused to practice favoritism and partiality towards the rich, said, I don't want your money if it's tainted. I'm not going to be bought. And you can take it elsewhere if you please. He was not going to bend to the rich man's will and show favoritism if it meant, uh, let's say, I guess like breaking down before God, breaking down before his standard. Your faith and trust gets real when money's on the line, amen? Amen. And it's a real temptation to practice partiality or favoritism towards the rich in those situations. And if you were that pastor, again, I think you'd be tempted even sometimes maybe to skip over certain passages in Scripture. It's like, I don't want to teach about that because I know so-and-so donates a lot and that might ruffle his feathers and maybe we won't have them anymore. That's still partiality. And that's our, we're now hammering on the rich. Guess what? This does not mean we overcorrect and show favoritism to the poor either. Okay? James is not saying the rich are up here and the poor are down here and that biblical justice is swapping those positions. That's not it. James is calling for believers to love each other on equal terms. As Jerry said, foot of the cross is equal, equal ground, equal playing field. Love one another unconditionally with impartiality because God's law is just and he is perfectly just to the rich and the poor. doesn't matter on judgment day if you're rich or poor. I have a few legal examples from the Old Testament to drive this home. Exodus 23, verses 1 through 3. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to, do, to be a malicious witness. 
You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Verse 3, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. There's some good stuff in that passage. I would recommend going back and studying on your own time because there's three things I see that are pretty crucial to how a a justice system should function. Number one, you should never lie as a witness. Pretty standard. Number two, truth and justice is not dictated by the majority even. And number three, an individual's wealth should never impact the decision of a legal ruling. Because there's a temptation as well to show partiality of the poor if you think they might need the money and assets more. How about Leviticus 19.15? You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. It is an injustice in God's eyes for anyone to be judged based on wealth. Wealth does not factor into righteous impartial decisions. And that same principle applies to how we treat another as a body of believers, the body of Christ. Are you tempted to neglect the homeless woman who walks in wearing some shabby clothes, maybe smells a little off? That's an image bearer of God. Seek her, draw her in, love her, show her compassion, and still point her to biblical truth. Are you tempted to see the man who walks in wearing Gucci or Ugg boots or I don't know, whatever else is popular these days? <laughs> Maybe you put him on the fast track to a group leader or elder over the church even. Stop. Bring yourself back to scripture. Hold him to the same standard and do not show favoritism towards him. Are you catching that? Now that's part one. As you can see, I wish I could go a lot further than that, but I feel like I, there's just a burden to move on. Because this sin, as James addressed it, goes much larger than just rich and poor. And as an example, I think the first draft of this, again, I went like almost 70 minutes on because it was like, well, I see this in society and over here and how about there and how about there? And I was like, okay, I just got to focus it in. What are the two most important things and where do I see it elsewhere in the church? That's what I want to cover. So there's two major examples I want to note of where else we see partiality taking today, okay? We're going to start with something very non-controversial, just very mainstream. How about COVID and COVID vaccines? There's no strong opinions about that, right? Yeah, we're jumping in. (laughs) So 2020, you may remember, it's many, many years ago. Okay, this pandemic is shaking out, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of fear, and churches are now being hurdled front and center to deal with these issues that haven't come up before in our generation. How do we deal with social distancing and masks and vaccines? And there's one practice of all that that stands out in terms of ugliness, and I think you'll see why. Churches that dictated worship participation based on vaccination status. I have screenshots from a real church here. This is, and this has been done in over by thousands of churches, I can assure you. And I promise you, I've not edited these in any way. This is their exact slides, okay? Seating inside the church will now be two persons per pew. Vaccinated adults can be seated inside the church if max capacity allows. Please be ready to show vaccination cards to the shrine's ushers. Unvaccinated adults should be seated outside the church, even if seats are still available inside the church. All persons accompanying children should be seated outside the church, regardless of whether the adults are vaccinated or not. These churches in their sin have almost exactly quoted James chapter 2, word for word, about making distinctions over something not about wealth, but about a shot. 
We do not get to add new requirements to God's law of who can participate in worship. Amen? We don't get to add a new ritual cleansing or something, some ceremonial law in order for people to come and participate and worship God. And hear me, church, I'm not taking a stance on the vaccine. That's not what this pulpit is for, not what I'm doing. You have freedom in that decision. I am simply saying scripture draws a line about whether the church can enforce a mandate or not for you to worship God. Amen? Because God in his providence gave us this pandemic. He oversaw it. God is sovereign. And we should not be quick just to cast it aside. Because the church stepped up in a lot of ways, but we also have a lot of lessons to learn. We did not nail it when it came to COVID. And this is good for testing and refining the church and rooting out wicked like this. This fruit was in this church long before COVID ever came around. Amen? And that's why, as I read those, I think of the Jerusalem Council in the book of Acts. I don't have time for the whole passage, but in your own time, this is Acts chapter 15. And the early apostles are having to confront some Jewish citizens that were teaching for Gentiles to truly be saved, they had to be circumcised first. They were dragging the old covenant into the new. And after much debate, the apostle Peter stands up and boldly proclaims in verse 10, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Mm. That's the gospel and the finality of Christ's work. Salvation and worship to the body of Christ was available to anyone, Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, male or female. And these apostles, you see this early doctrine of salvation clear, that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This council knew that circumcision and these ceremonial laws needed to be left behind. Which is why, when I read those slides, I see that vaccine example as no different than the early church making an announcement Sunday morning that sounds a lot like this. Good morning. Next week, we're going to start a circumcision inspection at the front door when you come in. If every male of the family is circumcised, you're welcome to come and sit in the front rows. If every male is not circumcised, we ask you to sit in the back if there's extra seating or worship from home until everyone has been properly circumcised and you can join us at the family of God. Now you laugh. It is funny. But if that example didn't quite stir up your stomach the same way the slides did, something's off. And if you weren't, if you weren't driven awake by the prostitution word, surely you're awake now. Under the guise of public safety, these churches created a new law that people have to participate in in order to meet and hear the gospel message. Their heartbeat is, I care more about my perceived safety on this side of eternity than the possibility of your eternal damnation. Their conduct is not in truth, with the step, not in step with the truth of the gospel because they're showing partiality towards the vaccinated and defaming our Lord of glory. For if a man presenting a vaccine card comes into your assembly and a man without one also comes in, and if you pay attention to the man with the vaccine card and say, you sit here in the good place, will you say to the other man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Okay, we're going to move on. Appreciate you sticking with me on that one. Second big example, racism. Why not? Let's just keep it controversial. There you go. 
So racism in the Bible, the biblical definition would actually be either ethnic hatred or on the other side, ethnic favoritism or partiality. And maybe this morning you're expecting me to spend a lot of time talking about historic forms of this, like the KKK or Southern slavery, which scripture absolutely condemns. Nothing unclear about that. And we should also not be quick to forget that it was oftentimes Christians who were justifying their actions by bending scripture. Okay, we can't just brush over that part of history because we don't like it. But God in his grace has brought those evils to an end. And at least America and other developed nations have made that illegal through actually the righteous actions of other Christians who were properly reading their Bible. And now the type of ethnic favoritism in the church has taken a different form. So I'm actually going to be talking about another form of this that you may not expect. And to give a hint, this conversation heated up a lot in 2020 with the death of George Floyd, which I think sparked maybe something that was already rumbling underneath the nation and churches, because his death sent shockwaves to the country. It was a huge conversation. And the mainline church response, in my opinion, was pretty much getting in lockstep with social justice activists. White supremacy has polluted every area of society, including Christianity, and we have to actively root it out. And frankly, because they started with that framework, a lot of churches have let demonic, evil teachings creep in and guide this conversation to remove so-called white supremacy rather than using scripture. We're talking about whether you've heard the words woke, white-hating, Marxist-influenced ideologies like Black Lives Matter, critical race theory, or the social justice gospel. And there's a few examples I see that I think I need to point out because the leaders of this movement sometimes have stated, well, here's an example. If your elder board is not diverse enough, you're in sin and you're racist. Now, they have yet to provide an actual like, formula. Is it like two elders to 10? Or like, is it an Asian guy and then a black guy and then a white guy? Like, are we good? They don't have any specifics, but you're just in sin, right? And if you think this is just like a big conversation, Matt Chandler... You may know his name. He's a well-known pastor in Dallas, Texas. And he actually addressed this in a sermon in 2018. He was, it was at an MLK 50 event. And he was talking about church planning. And Pastor Chandler boasted that he actually told his search committee when looking for pastoral elders for a new church plant on a scale of 1 to 10 that he preferred for a black 6 to get the job over a white 8. Hear that. A well-known national pastor said that a less qualified black man should get the job over a more qualified white man. Or, to put it plainly, that the most important factor to him of choosing a new elder was the color of their skin. Another pop quiz, open book. Does either list of elder qualifications in 1 Timothy or Titus include skin color anywhere? No. No. But he's adding onto this law because he wants to virtue signal and try and fix something, racism, by more racism. And his example, I'll be honest, it stings me, because he's been an orthodox preacher of the word for many, many years. He's still solid on many, many things. But he's been deceived here, and he has a lot of influence, so it hurts. I personally don't care at all about the ethnic background of an elder. I care whether they're biblically wise, righteous, outstanding men of God who are going to root themselves in God's word and his law. Amen? Now, moving on to another example, I got to move through quite a few here. There was a Q&A I saw recently, and there was uh, several black pastors that are a pastor out in Buffalo, uh, New York. And they're going through this Q&A answering questions, and one of them, speaking of George Floyd's death, mentioned how he had several of his white pastor friends reach out to him 
after this, basically asking something on the lines of, hey, man, what, what should I do? What do I say about this? Can you maybe come join us one Sunday and kind of help me navigate this conversation since you're a black Christian man? Surely you have some insight on this. And his response, and kind of paraphrase here, was pretty incredible. He just said, why are you asking me? Just read and teach the Bible and do what it says. There's no wisdom in there that I have access to that you don't. You just don't want to say the hard things and you want me to come say the hard things because I look different. See, even those white pastors are practicing partiality and favoritism. Assuming that the black Christian man is somehow more qualified to tackle specific sins than they are. The entire counsel of God's word is available to all of us. And scripture is sufficient. We do not need white fragility, Robin DiAngelo, Ibram X. Kendi, or any new book in this BLM can of scripture to guide this conversation. Final example. This is actually in God's providence, something that I found online while preparing this sermon. He's great like that. This is a tweet I saw. I blacked out the name, but it's a well-known believer on uh, Twitter. My ethnic, non-believing brother will always be more of a brother to me than a brother in Christ of different ethnicity. That's just the truth. This is not just the truth. This is a lie. Church, you have way more in common with a believer in China that you've never met than your own unbelieving sibling or family member or ethnic brother or sister. Do not believe this lie. This is ethnic favoritism. And ethnic favoritism is blasphemy in any direction. KKK lynchings and persecuting black slaves all the way over to a woke believer saying that they'll always have more of a familial tie to an ethnic brother rather than a brother and sister in Christ. Because with ethnic favoritism, you're taking God's creation, someone made in his image, and calling him a liar and saying, you got it right with this person, but not quite over here. They're a little bit different. All because of the level of melanin in their skin. It's a heck of a lot more than thinking one ethnicity is superior to another. Because when we say one ethnicity is more superior than another, we've actually made another idol of melanin or skin color. We're blaspheming God's good creation hating it, and pouring our worship into a God of vanity. And as a quick but relevant sidebar, because it it is important for this conversation, I need you to see this, because it'll help you identify these issues and sins. The people producing the vaccine mandates or the race-hustling ideas in the church are Pharisees. Because the sin of the Pharisees was not that they cared too much about God's law or that they were too religious. I'll say that again. The sin of the Pharisees was not that they cared too much about God's law or that they were too religious. Jesus makes it clear in repeated rebukes to the Pharisees that they were self-righteous hypocrites who added things onto God's law in order to have the appearance of looking more holy, believing they were saved through these additional works. Kind of a lot like adding skin color to the list of elder qualifications so that everyone can see how diverse and inclusive you are. Or saying that you can't even begin to join the conversation on racial reconciliation until you read five new pieces of woke canon scripture like white fragility. Or to an earlier example, kind of a lot like adding the mandate to take a shot in order to worship with the people of God when God makes no such binding on your conscience. To wrap this up, there's a fascinating passage in the scripture 
in Galatians, that's actually this exact same sin. And this is the Apostle Peter, who started out his ministry worshiping and fellowshipping with people of all different stripes and colors. But once, he was, once some Jewish men started showing up to a city he was ministering in, he actually got a little afraid. He started pulling back from Gentiles and started hanging out more with his Jewish brothers because he was a little fearful of judgment that might come his way. He was allowing ethnic favoritism to actually dictate his attitude towards other believers instead of what God called them as brothers and sisters in Christ that are equal. And this actually leads to the Apostle Paul in Galatians publicly rebuking Peter for this. This is Galatians 2. But when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they, Jewish men, came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the elders, the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before all of them, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Paul recognized that this sin of ethnic favoritism was not the fruit of the gospel. The apostle Peter was in sin, and Paul called him out on it publicly, apostle to apostle. For if an African-American man or Jewish man comes into your assembly, and a white man or Gentile also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one with darker skin and say, you sit here in the good place, while you say to the other, stand over here or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So what's the solution? What do we do now? How are we putting this sin to death and rooting it out? There's got to be something we can do. Well, I'm going to keep it simple for you this morning and just two simple encouragements that have a few different layers to them. So, number one, pretty simple. Cherish scripture. Cherish this book. And if you take pictures, I have four subpoints pointing up so you can wait until the end. <laughs> Scripture obviously has immense benefit when we study it, meditate on it, preach it, read it. But there's a few specific benefits I want to point out as it relates to this sin, because it's kind of a cop-out for me to just say, like, study Scripture. I want to show you what I mean. Number one, Scripture provides wisdom from the Holy Spirit. James chapter 1, verse 5, a little earlier in this same book. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Or Romans 2.12. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Scripture has answers on how we determine worship participation, how we pastor a church, how we reconcile with one another, and how we deal with cultural differences. All of it. We've seen a lot of unique challenges as a church in the past few years. COVID, race relations, LGBTQIA+. But as Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. These are the same old sins that just take different forms. But it's the same old thing. And none of these are a surprise to God. He's not sitting up on the throne biting his proverbial fingernails. 
as James promises, if you earnestly seek wisdom from God through scripture, he will give it to you. Number two, we see the doctrine of total depravity in scripture. And you'll see why this is important. Because total depravity states that all of us, every single one of us, are corrupt and wicked down to our core. Every part of our being is corrupted by sin from our father Adam. Total depravity means that no one has outrun the curse of sin. Therefore, if we make up this superficial superiority between one another, it's just a joke. It's a charade. We are all equally guilty. Romans 3, verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. Further down in the chapter, verse 23. For we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Every single one of us stand condemned. And as believers, we ought to be the ones leading the charge on casting down distinctions and unifying instead around the one who has saved us from that sin. I'll say it one more time. As believers, we ought to be the first to cast aside childish distinctions and unify around the Savior with his common blood that bought all of us. Number three, Scripture will grow your admiration of God. I like that one. That was a personal note for some of you paying attention. If you can read that. It just says the whole Bible, really. Because if you have a high view of yourself or someone else, that tells me you have a low view of God. Because if you're tempted to show favoritism or partiality towards someone, you probably don't understand who God is, who our glorious creator is. Because when we learn more about God, we realize how wretched we are and how great he is. Because God is so much higher than any of us truly comprehend. We're going to spend an eternity having revelation and learning more about the glory of God. And yet we're so consumed on earth, judging and elevating one another, and yet I see Christ, this isn't in scripture, but I almost see Christ saying at the right hand of the Father, stop, glorify me. Stop obsessing over such trivial distinctions and focus on glorifying me. Reserve the special high seat for me alone. I am worthy. Think of all the biblical examples. I listed a few here of humans when they came face to face with God in some fashion. Job 42, one of my favorites. Job says, now my eyes see you, therefore I hate myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah says, woe to me, I cried, for I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Luke 5, Peter, after witnessing a miracle of Jesus, gets on his hands and knees and says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man Oh Lord. Last example. It's a little long. Scripture gives us the standard to judge everything. The only reason I'm standing up here this morning and able to condemn vaccine mandates for church participation or condemn the deceitful teachings of the woke church is because of the authority of Scripture. I anchored each of these rebukes in Scripture because this is not just Chris's TED Talk. This is not Chris's personal opinions on the matter. What else could I possibly root myself in and what standard could I possibly else go to? This law is beautiful 
And we ought to delight in it just as David did. Now, yes, God's law carries the weight of condemnation if you're not under faith in Christ. But as believers, we should treasure this law. We're not under its condemnation anymore. Be slow to judge. God has a process for how things are judged. And guess what? It's not jumping on Twitter or Facebook 10 minutes after a tragedy happens with your hasty opinion. I would submit that if you want to be the salt and light of the world, you could actually look different and look like Christ when people say, hey, what, did you see this? What did you think about that? And you're saying, you know what? I actually, I don't want to be too hasty on this. I think some evidence is still coming forward. I want to see this weighted out in a court of law. I want to see cross-examination before I actually have an opinion and speak on this. What a crazy concept. Talk about an incredible way to be a witness for Christ. Say, you know what? Scripture actually says I should not rush in before, after the first opinion until I've heard the other side, the cross-examination. So that's encouragement number one. Cherish scripture. Number two, we ought to live out Christian unity and love rooted in the truth of the gospel. We should live out Christian unity and love rooted in the truth of the gospel. I don't think we understand how big of a deal it was in the early church that Gentiles could now be in equal fellowship with Jews. Salvation was now impartial, and a lot of prideful Jews struggled to believe that any ethnicity or tribe was now welcome to be a part of the family of God without any sort of physical sign. Which is why the same Apostle Peter, before slipping into his sin of partiality, actually leads a gospel presentation in Acts 10 with this truth right out of the gate. Truly I understand that God shows, I underlined this, this is, this is just me, no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. What happened to this Peter? This is amazing in Acts, proclaiming this truth that both Jews and Gentiles can now be saved and that the message of salvation is available to all who sit under it. Peter forgot something, clearly. Jews started showing up. He started practicing kinism rather than biblical love, and he got nervous. He leaned back into his old tribe and identity and started showing favoritism and then hatred towards another group. He started drawing lines of distinctions and divisions around ethnicity rather than the body of Christ. Church, as the body of Christ, we ought to have a level of unity that makes no sense to the world. Because we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Some of you know where I'm going. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This truth in 1 Peter is what that gentleman from the earlier tweet does not understand. He has not grasped this yet. Because as believers, we've been called out of darkness and into light. This is a royal priesthood. Do you see the richness of that? On the final day of judgment, the true church of the saints is going to have both rich and poor. People from every walk of life, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, demonstrating incredible selfless love towards one another. All standing together, singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We're all going to be collectively praising a holy, merciful God 
that saved people from all across the world? Can we focus less on these horizontal distinctions and instead go vertical and focus on the infinite gap that Christ bridged between us and God? The merciful God who took on flesh and lived the perfect life that we never could and then went to death on a criminal's cross and yet three days later rose from the dead, conquering sin and death forever for all those who would believe in his name. Break bread with brothers and sisters of Christ and celebrate the reality of that salvation together. Look past these eternal disti- or sorry, external distinctions and be unified under our common Savior who has spilled his blood for every single one of us. Cast out favoritism. Live out deep love for one another by being quick to forgive, selfless in love, and walking in gospel unity. Not letting the devil or the world divide us over these silly little things. And church, I realize this isn't something I just say, I'm like, oh, great, we got it. We're going to go do it. Done. This takes work. There's cultural distinctions that have to be worked through in the church, and, and some of it's going to be uncomfortable. But the answer is always leaning back in who has saved us, leaning back in Christ, because he unifies us. So examine yourself this morning. Are you showing favoritism to someone right now based on an evil judgment outside of scripture? Is there someone maybe even you've been avoiding or internally despising because of an unfair distinction that you've put on them? Do you have a temptation to favor the rich more or to maybe add a standard to God's law so that you can maybe virtue signal the world how awesome you are? Or, heaven forbid, do you believe that the gospel message is not truly for all types of people? It's not for the whole world and that every tribe, tongue, and nation ought to be evangelized? If so, you repent. Love on this holy family, this royal priesthood, and focus all special glory and attention to Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father. With that, I want to leave you with this truth from Galatians chapter 3. Um, so once I read this, actually, if you want to close your eyes, I'm going to pray this out anyway. So would you just let these words pour over you? Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 28. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Father God, we thank you for the incredible nature of your word that you have given us this book that has been protected through thousands of years and handed down to the church. And even the fact that we live in a church age when we have access to your entire weight of scripture. And may we lean on it. May we be reminded of the gospel that these distinctions we make up are truly just pulling our attention from you and pulling our attention into different groups instead of coming as one royal family, holy priesthood to worship you. And Father, would your spirit be working in us? Would you illuminate us to how this sin I I couldn't cover all the examples, God. Would you illuminate our spirits if we're taking this sin in another form that we don't recognize yet? Because we want to look more like your son. We want to practice no partiality. And we want to worship him as a true Lord of glory. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit bentreechurch.com.